From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 433 for the week of April 19th, 2015. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. I am your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by my good friends Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Malata Willie, and Michael Bowling. And in this segment, Michael continues his lead up to Disneyland's 60th birthday and we are approaching a exciting time for the parks, right Michael? We are. This was probably one of their busiest times since the opening of Disneyland uh-huh. and that's when Walt Disney and his Imagineers got involved in a 1964-65 New York World's Fair. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about um, how it impacted Disneyland. And there's even something for our Walt Disney World listeners in in this segment. Throw throw them a bone. I am. I am. And also, this is kind of related. There's some little movie coming out soon that has a little bit to do with the World's Fair too, right? Right. Tomorrowland. Yeah. Which Yay. which they filmed partially at Disneyland in order to recreate the sixty four sixty five World's Fair. Wow, neat! Yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. So now, Walt Disney first participated in World's Fairs in 1939 at San Francisco's and New York's World Fair by featuring a special Mickey Mouse cartoon, Mickey's Surprise Party, which Walt Disney personally put into production to promote the national biscuit company Nabisco's products, and in 1958 at the World's Fair in Brussels, Belgium. Now, for the United States Pavilion in Brussels, Wed produced the Circa-Rama film America the Beautiful, which took visitors on a tour of the United States, from New York Harbor through giant industries and golden wheat fields, to Washington, D.C. at Cherry Blossom Time, to New England, Glacier National Park, San Francisco's Golden Gate, and the Grand Canyon. The film also appeared at the American National Exhibition in Moscow, Russia in 1959 before debuting at Disneyland on June 14, 1960. However, the Disney World's Fair Association goes back even farther. Eight years before his youngest son's birth, Elias Disney had worked as a carpenter at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Now, aside from his contribution to the 1939 New York World's Fair, the World of Tomorrow, as the fair was called, it held an interest for Walt Disney. The fair's dominant icons, the Trilon and the Perisphere, the grandeur of the Art Deco display buildings, and the efficient centralized hub site plan would be recalled 15 years later as planning for Disneyland began. The importance of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair in the history of the Walt Disney Company and a decision to build Walt Disney World is legendary. According to the official stories, how East Coast guests respond to Disneyland-style attractions was instrumental in Walt Disney's decision to move forward with his Florida project. However, in reality, representatives of the Disney studio had been scoping out property in Florida for over three years prior to the opening of the New York World's Fair in April 1964. So if the New York World's Fair didn't give birth to Walt Disney's world, 
Why do theme park historians place so much significance in Walt Disney's participation in the World's Fair, 3,000 miles from Disneyland, dedicated to peace through understanding and celebrating man's achievements in an expanding universe? Well, the answer is the technology that Walt Disney and his Imagineers developed to create some of their greatest attractions, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Pirates of the Caribbean, and the Haunted Mansion were a direct result of Walt Disney's participation in a 1964-65 New York World's Fair. The World's Fair was the impetus behind the most significant period of technical and creative advances in Disney theme park history. Walt was well aware of the opportunities an exhibition like the New York World's Fair would offer his company when he told his Imagineers, There's going to be a great big fair in New York. All of the big corporations in the country are going to spend a hell of a lot of money building exhibits there. They don't know what they want to do. They don't even know why they're doing it, except that the other corporations are doing it, and they need to keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> Now they're all going to want something that will make them stand out from the others, and that's the kind of service we can offer them. We've proved we can do it with Disneyland. This is a great opportunity for us to grow. We can use their financing to develop a lot of technology that will help us in the future, and we'll be getting new attractions for Disneyland, too. That will appeal to them. We can say that they'll be getting shows that won't be seen for two six-month periods at the fair, these shows can go on for five to ten years at Disneyland. The New York World's Fair of 1964-65 would be held at Flushing Meadows, the same location as the 1939 World's Fair. Robert Moses, the developer of the 1939 World's Fair, was planning a major encore for 1964-65. One of Moses' first tasks upon becoming president of the fair in 1960 was to suggest some sort of symbol to represent the fair. Having been intimately involved with the 39 fair, Moses knew the value of a highly recognizable symbol. The Trilon and Perisphere of the earlier fair had become popular icons in their day. He turned to the design firm of Walter Doran Teague, to come up with some ideas. Their suggestion was for a 170-foot high steel and aluminum spiral called Journey to the Stars. At one point in its design, a ride took people to the top of the spiral, and helium-filled star-shaped balloons floated about the top of the structure. Moses rejected this proposal, calling it a cross between a part of a make-and-break engine or a bedspring. Another rejected proposal called for a star-viewing platform to be presented by Portland Cement called the Galaxon. This 160-foot-high, 340-foot diameter saucer-shaped structure would have had a difficult time being useful as the lights from the fair, the world's largest city, and the world's largest searchlight just down the lane might have made star-viewing a bit difficult. In the end, it was an old associate from Robert Moses' 1939 World's Fair days, Gilmore Clark, that originated the idea of Unisphere. It was certainly understandable by the average man and truly represented man's new role in the space age. It was a readily recognizable icon for its time. However, 
It now appears credit for designing the Unisphere should have gone to Disney artist and Imagineer Harper Goth. Marty Sklar recently related this story. Ron Miller, who is Walt Disney's son-in-law and the former CEO of the Walt Disney Company, asked me to look at some things. He was thinking about doing a special show about Harper Goff for the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, and one of Harper's relatives had turned over a lot of things that had been passed down from person in the family to another. Ron asked me to take a look at it, and one of the things I found was a drawing of the Unisphere for the New York World's Fair Corporation. Harper had done the original, and down in the corner it said, to be made out of aluminum. Well, I think what happened was that they sold the idea to U.S. Steel, and it was built out of steel, and Harper got kicked out of any credit for it. The 1964-65 New York World's Fair wasn't recognized by the Bureau of International Expositions, or BIE. Seattle had just held a World's Fair in 1962, and there are certain rules the BIE has for World's Fairs. One rule is only one exposition can be held in the same country within a certain time period. Another rule is no rent could be charged for the plots of land which exhibitors would be on. And of course, the New York businessmen didn't care for that rule. Finally, the BIE stated the World's Fair could only run for six months. So Robert Moses went to the BIE headquarters in Paris asking for his fair to be sanctioned and was told, no, you can't do it. And Robert Moses, a true New Yorker, said, we're going to do it anyway. And so they did. And as a result of that decision, 40 members of the BIE, including the United Kingdom and Canada, were absent from the fair because they were asked to abstain from the New York World's Fair, and they did. But the good news was Robert Moses was able to get a lot of other countries to participate, some that had never participated in a fair before. He was also able to convince Vatican City to bring the Pietà to the World's Fair. It was the number two attraction at the fair. It was viewed by 78,000 visitors every day. In place of the countries that sat out the fair, Robert Moses turned to American industry and said American industry will be the champion of the fair. It will be a showplace for technology and America's leadership in the modern age. The major American corporations of that time dominated the fair, including U.S. Steel, IBM, Ford, General Motors, General Electric, Chrysler, AT&T, and Kodak. Robert Moses was determined to make this fair one of the most lavish in history. As part of his research, Moses traveled to California to study Disneyland. He also intended to meet with Walt Disney to propose New York adaptations of Disneyland's Utopia, Cirque Rama, Rocket to the Moon, and Monorail. Walt's affection for the past and his belief in its relevance for the future was evident in the earliest stages of the development of Disneyland. Back on November 11, 1956, Walt Disney announced a major expansion for Disneyland to open in 1959 called Liberty Square. This area would be a cul-de-sac extending from Main Street USA's Town Square. 
theme to colonial America, the major attraction would be One Nation Under God. Inside would be a Hall of the Declaration of Independence and the Hall of Presidents. Due to the significant cost of this production, Walt couldn't afford to produce this show on his own. He had spent several years attempting to find corporate sponsors without success. Determined to find a corporate sponsor to underwrite the cost of the Hall of Presidents, Walt had his Imagineers build a full-scale version of one figure from the show, Abraham Lincoln, in the hope that when potential sponsors saw one of these robotic presidents, they would want to be associated with the attraction. Walt told his biographer, Bob Thomas, I'm trying to interest big companies to sponsor it because I want the attraction to be free. Being the showman, Walt had his Imagineers set up a manually controlled version of the Lincoln figure that could stand up and shake the hand of any potential sponsor. When Robert Moses arrived to meet Walt Disney, Walt asked him if he would like to meet Mr. Lincoln. Moses gave me a funny look, Walt remembered. I said, come on in and meet him. So when we walked in the door, I said, Mr. Lincoln, meet Mr. Moses. And Lincoln stood up and put his hand out, and Moses went over and shook hands with him. Well, Moses is also quite a showman, and he said, I've got to have Lincoln at the fair. But I said, this is five years away anyway. But Moses wouldn't take no for an answer. The next thing I knew, he had gotten together with the state of Illinois and was trying to sell them on a pavilion. Before I knew it, I had my arm twisted, and I said yes. Now we had to get Mr. Lincoln on the road, I think, in about 13 months. Like Walt, Moses wanted the full version of the show, One Nation Under God. So Moses personally began pursuing potential sponsors for the show. Initially, he went after the folks with the deepest pockets, the United States government. Moses appealed directly to the Department of Commerce, the one office within the government with direct control over how the United States' money would be spent at the fair. He met personally with the Undersecretary of Commerce, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Jr., to try to get his office behind One Nation Under God's show. In the end, the U.S. government, though impressed with Disney's proposed presentation, felt that a show that featured talking doll versions of our commanders-in-chief might be viewed by some as being demeaning to the office of the president. So they opted to pass on the project. Moses refused to give up and continued to pursue potential sponsors for One Nation Under God Hall of Presidents, including Coca-Cola, who had already passed on sponsoring Disneyland's Enchanted Tiki Room. Despite arranging for the Lincoln figure to be transported from Burbank to New York for a demonstration, Coke's CEO declined the sponsorship. Finally, the state of Illinois, which was not able to obtain the necessary funding to sponsor an attraction at the fair until early 1963, was seeking an attraction to sponsor. Well, you guessed it, Abraham Lincoln finally had a sponsor. Given the short time left before the opening of the World's Fair, Walt Disney and his Imagineers did not have the time to build audio-animatronic figures of all the other presidents, so the concept was reduced from the Hall of Presidents to Abraham Lincoln appearing in great moments with Mr. Lincoln.
Blaine Gibson was one of the finest sculptors ever to work for Walt Disney Productions, but his confidence had wavered when he was informed Wed really had to complete the Lincoln figure. Fortunately, he recalled, we only had to do the one figure, but even the Lincoln show certainly didn't appear to some of us the right thing to do. It seemed that we were getting into areas that were competitive with acting, something that could be done much better by live performers. I thought at the time that we'd be fooling with something that the American people considered to be almost sacred historically. I just couldn't see us doing it in an acceptable way. But we went ahead. However, Gibson realized live actors were rarely able to give quality performances when trying to emulate historical figures the public had seen through photographs. No matter how great the actors were, said Gibson, they usually didn't have the physiognomy to be believable. I suspect that Walt was hoping that we could, for the first time in history, really make Lincoln look like Lincoln, something that an actor could never do and something that a makeup man could never do. Gibson made Lincoln look real by making him larger than life. He knew in a theater environment the Lincoln figure would appear dwarfed and would have to be taller than Lincoln's six-foot-four-inch frame in order to appear that size. For visual references, Blaine referred to the work of the pioneer Civil War photographer Matthew Brady, we probably had better access to visual information on Lincoln than on any contemporary president, recalled Gibson. Back in those early days of photography, they had to take poses that they could hold for a long time. We had enough side views, front views, and three-quarter views to do a credible job. Blaine Gibson worked from a life mask of Lincoln taken in 1860 to sculpt the president's face. No one would ever question the authenticity of this three-dimension likeness of our 16th president. However, some question Walt Disney's judgment. Why would he choose to feature one of the most revered American presidents in his experimental show? Newspaper editorials decried Disney's audacity. They believed the idea of a Winkin' Blinkin' Lincoln was one of the most tasteless endeavors imaginable. Imagineer Wethel Rogers was astutely aware of the pitfalls. When the time for the press preview neared, he was philosophical as Lincoln's 500 pounds of hydraulic pressure smashed a chair to splinters. It seems that no matter every show we open, said Rogers, we always have a technical problem because we're trying systems that are experimental ahead of their time. Rogers had a special breakaway chair ready just in case Lincoln became destructive. James Algar, a Disney veteran famed for writing and directing the True Life Adventure film series, was preparing the Lincoln figure speech and writing the two pavilion shows, The Illinois Story and The Story of the Gettysburg Address. Walt cast the crucial voice of Lincoln by recruiting character actor Royal Dano, who had recently appeared in Disney's sequel to Old Yeller, Savage Sam. Royal Dano had played Lincoln on television and resembled the tall, lanky president. The voice of Paul Fries, who would be the future ghost host of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion, was enlisted for narration throughout the pavilion. Disney composer Buddy Baker was assigned to the Illinois Project.
Baker drew upon authentic melodies of the Civil War period, as well as his own compositions from the Disney television story Johnny Shiloh. For the stirring Battle Hymn of the Republic finale, Baker and choral arranger Alan Davies used extensive overdubbing to transform 32 singers into an enormous celestial choir, which seemed to progress through the theater by layering several stereophonic tracks into a gradual procession. Given that Walt Disney got a late start on Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, it seems appropriate Mr. Lincoln did not debut with the rest of the fair on April 20th. Mr. Lincoln arrived in New York less than a week before the fair's opening. The figure had finally performed beautifully for Imagineers in California, but suddenly refused to function in New York. On the night of the premiere, Walt Disney arrived with the governors of Illinois and New York. He asked Dick Nunes if everything was ready. No, sir, Dick Nunes replied. We just don't have a show. The program is still malfunctioning. Walt Disney did a good job of hiding his frustration. Okay, I'll handle it, he said. As the entourage filed into the Pressfield Theater, Ladies and gentlemen, he said calmly, there's an old saying in show business, If you're not ready, don't open the curtain. I'm sorry to say that we have a malfunction and the show's not ready. Walt promised them a show the following week giving Waythel Rogers and his crew several days to resolve the problems. Lincoln officially opened to the public two weeks later, May 2, 1964. This time, the preview shows went well. Waythel Rogers remembered, At the end of one of the first shows, there was a good round of applause, as usual, when Lincoln sat down. But due to a malfunction in one of the feedback wires in his leg, he stood back up, as if he were taking a bow. The place came apart. People cheered and clapped and generally went crazy. Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln was a sensation. The 496-seat theater was routinely filled to capacity, and according to a Disney status report, the attraction was one of the very few draws that had spontaneous applause at the end of each show. Guest survey cards were ecstatic should be shown to everyone throughout the world to show the meaning of freedom and liberty. First time I cried in years. Thank you for keeping the spirit of Lincoln alive. And perhaps the ultimate endorsement. I heard favorable comments about this show from a New York taxi driver. Walt Disney was proud, but not prouder than Robert Moses, who had worked for nearly two years to find Lincoln, Disney Lincoln's a home at his fair. Years after the 1964 World's Fair closed, Moses was often heard to say, My two greatest accomplishments at the fair were Michelangelo's Pietà and Disney's Lincoln. As I mentioned earlier, Walt Disney and Coca-Cola had spent most of 1962 in discussions about whether Coca-Cola would underwrite the costs of creating the Enchanted Tiki Room attraction, which was planned to be the centerpiece attraction at Coca-Cola's pavilion at the 1964 World's Fair. Coke ultimately decided not to sponsor the Tiki Room due to its high cost. General Motors, who had stolen the show at the 1939 fair with their Futurama ride, was considering sponsorship of a dinosaur show at Disneyland in a rotating carousel theater. Walt Disney and General Motors had 
also been in negotiations about an attraction for the World's Fair, including sponsorship of the Tiki Room in GM's pavilion. GM had their own in-house World's Fair exhibit committee and felt they didn't need Disney's help at the 1964 World's Fair. But, as they closed out negotiations with Disney in late 1960, GM officials reportedly joked, You know who you should really be talking to, Walt? The folks over at Ford. We hear they don't know what the hell they're going to do when it comes to the fair. This, as it turns out, was indeed the case, which is why Ford jumped at the chance of having Disney create an exhibit for their company to display at the 1964 World's Fair. By July 1961, the Imagineers were already on site in Dearborn, Michigan, looking for ideas they could possibly use in Ford's fair attraction. The Imagineers didn't discover any concepts for possible fair attractions out of this trip to Michigan, but what they did get was an idea for a new theme park ride system. Observing how Ford started out with a half ton of molten metal, then moved that super hot pile of steel along a half mile long assembly line, only to have a finished car completed at the other end of the factory, Imagineer John Hench wondered, could this same technology be used to move people? The idea for the people mover and omnimover came out of that visit. The first idea Walt Disney and his Imagineers pitched to Ford in June 1961 was a Symphony of America ride, which would have taken fair visitors on a simulated tour of the United States. Guests would have sat in Ford vehicles as they rolled past elaborate recreations of the Grand Canyon, the Everglades, the Sequoias, and more. Ford rejected this idea outright. Why? Because back in those days, you didn't tour America in the Ford. You saw the USA in your Chevrolet. So Ford didn't want to do anything that might inadvertently help its competition. Ford requested something bigger. Imagineers Claude Coates, Mark Davis, and Blaine Gibson were put in charge of the Ford project and then told to get as far away from the Symphony of America idea as possible, which is why they decided to set the revamped Ford attraction in the distant past. So while the state of Illinois chose to sponsor a bit of history in Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Ford Motor Company sponsored some prehistory. Ford's pavilion would feature a time machine journey in which visitors would be carried in Ford convertibles along a magic skyway. On their adventure through time, they would encounter cavemen and full-sized dinosaurs, brought to life through the magic of audio animatronics. The visitors would spy on primitive man at that moment of major discoveries, such as making fire and fashioning a crude invention that later became the wheel. The grand finale carried the show into a city of the future. An agreement with Ford was reached in March 1962. The automaker had secured a seven-acre fairground site to be dominated by a pavilion designed by the architectural firm of Walt Disney's friend, Welton Beckett. The 235-foot diameter rotunda and its adjacent seven-story show building would feature Disney-developed displays with Disney's Magic Skyway as its centerpiece. The project was plagued with had now become the usual expected problems. Imagineer Bob Gurr worked on designing the patent mountings for each of the Ford car chassis, Lincoln, Mercury, Falcon, 
Comet, and a new secret one called the R-Car. In October 1963, Gurr was at the Ford Motor Company Proving Ground Special Process Lab in West Dearborn, Michigan, to see the R. It turned out to be America's first pony car, the 1965 Ford Mustang. Gurr also got to see a second secret project, the very first Shelby Cobra under construction. Gurr recalls making a number of visits to the New York World's Fair site from late 1963 through April 1964 to assist in the final installation of the Magic Skyway attraction. The methods used by the unions and contractors at the site were a revelation to me. New Yorkers have their own way of doing business. The electrical union was restricted from connecting more than five wires per hour. I learned to sit by with them hooking up the track drive units telling each other's stories until the hour was up. Then we'd do another hookup. The bottom of the Ford ride was left as bare earth to save money. Why pave a black hole? I'd be eating my lunch with the guards sitting around on dirt piles. A rat would scamper by. Blam! A guy pulled out a forty-five and splattered the innocent creature right in front of me. <laughs> we sometimes had to receive three deliveries of building materials in order to have one for use. Everything was under armed guard at night. One night we watched the first delivery come in, then get picked up by burglars, all while the guards guarded. These were lessons in humanity I never forgot. As the Skyway went through months of testing and adjusting, some new failure occurred daily. The worst problem was in the simplified method to keep the cars spaced apart safely. Every time the ride stopped and restarted, some cars would get closer to the ones ahead, enough to bang bumpers and smash taillights. Nowadays, cars are built with federal bumper standards, but not in 1964. Ford had a local dealer arrange with a body repair shop at night to do body and paint work to fix the damage caused by each day's test runs. The day before the opening in April 1964, the nighttime body shop was still pounding out and repainting bashed cars. The worst damage would happen as cars went around the many sharp turns on the ride. To add to the stress of opening day, President Lyndon Johnson was to dedicate the fair, then his motorcade would pass beneath the Magic Skyway control booth. Bob Gurr remembers that a Ford employee had a brilliant fix for the bumper bashing on turns. He sent everyone available out to buy every baseball bat in New York and buy all the yellow ribbon material they could find. The idea was that we would casually insert a baseball bat between the bumpers of the cars, and that way we wouldn't smash the taillights. Just before President Johnson was due to pass nearby, a squad of Secret Service agents with their little green triangle buttons showed up. When they saw all the Ford guys with the newly hired ride operators standing at the turns with yellow ribbon baseball bats, a serious inquiry started. It didn't help that I was standing next to a window with my hands in my pocket looking down at the parade route. The words that were exchanged were very hot. I spent the afternoon away in a peaceful corner of the fair and missed the President of the United States and the Bumper Bash Baseball Bat inaugural run. When I returned, a fuming Roger Brogy wanted to know what I'd said to the palace guards. Jim MacDonald was given another type of challenge regarding the show's audio system. 
McDonald's experiments with sound effects have provided Disney with the largest audio library of its type in the world. McDonald had also supplied the voices for many Disney cartoon characters, from yodeling dwarfs and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to Mickey Mouse himself. Giving voice to dinosaurs and cavemen almost left McDonald's speechless, literally. The primitive grunts of prehistoric man were easy, but the ferocious snarls and thunderous roars of fighting dinosaurs had put such a strain on his vocal cords that they loosened like slack strings on a guitar and went temporarily silent. But not before he accomplished his task. Passengers aboard the Magic Skyway were astonished by sounds they had never heard before. Guests entering the Ford Wonder Rotunda reception area complete with a bucket seat lounge chairs, could explore the International Gardens, an area designed to showcase Ford as a multinational corporation. Walt Disney, a builder and collector of miniatures, had suggested the one-half-inch-to-the-foot scale village, saluting 11 countries with Ford manufacturing facilities. To enhance the international atmosphere of the display, each island broadcast a unique audio track coordinated with the garden's area music. Disney staff composer George Bruns recorded instruments native to each region as overlays to the nine orchestral selections heard throughout the rotunda. The center point of the adjacent theme center was the fair's largest installation, the 23-foot-tall, 145-foot-wide theme mural designed by John Hench. Its 96 sculpted panels depicted space exploration, science, engineering, and architecture. Guests ascended past the mural on sloped speed ramps to the pavilion's second level. Along the way, a mirror illusion purported to show all 15 million Model T Fords ever produced. The most greatly anticipated section of the Ford Pavilion was Walt Disney's Magic Skyway, a 12-minute journey into time long past and time soon to come. What we want to provide guests of the Ford Pavilion is an entirely original experience, something no one has seen or done before, said Walt Disney. 160 1964 Ford convertibles, including the new Mustang unveiled at the fair, ferried passengers along the tandem tracks of 1,236 constantly spinning drive wheels. The car's engines and transmissions were removed, and six-track tape players were installed for the narration, written by Marty Scalar which would play through the car's radio speakers and be available in several languages at the touch of a button. For the 1964 fair season, Disney television announcer Dick Wesson was the in-dash host. But for 1965, at the request of Henry Ford II, Walt Disney was the guide. George Bruns' dramatic musical underscoring for each scene came from speakers hidden within the sets. From the embarkation point, a ceaseless stream of cars flowed outside the pavilion and into a graceful curving clear tube, which encircled the structure. Re-entering the pavilion through the time tunnel, with its flashing stroboscopic lights and illusion of speed, the show began with the dawn of time. Enormous audio-animatronic dinosaurs presided over a misty swamp. 
the advent of man was symbolized by a solitary silhouetted figure who slowly raised his arms and arched his back as he reached towards the future. The calm of the first scene was followed by a fierce conflict between a stegosaurus and a fearsome tyrannosaurus rex against an exploding volcano and lava flow. Beyond this chaotic tumult, a new creature appeared against a rising sun. Further on, primitive man was portrayed in a far less monumental light. Thanks to the humorous staging and design of Mark Davis, stylized cavemen struggled to conquer fire, language, and art, as well as the occasional giant bear and saber-toothed cat. Navigation was made easier by the invention of the wheel, and the magic Skyway Rider saw not only the launch of this new technology, but the start of the world's first road trip, as a caveman and cavewoman set out to explore the world. A second time tunnel contained the swirling montage of wheels, wheels that had begun so simply, yet now had evolved into the magic bullet of mechanized technology. The fantastic future that loomed ahead in the city of tomorrow was a surreal wonderland of space-age spires and sparkling structures linked by free-flowing highways in a starry sky. The convertible time machines next drove right into one of the futuristic buildings where Ford created styling, science, and product showcases awaited. The Ford Wonder Rotunda made its debut ten days before the fair's official opening at a national press premiere. Henry Ford II tooted the horn of a 1964 Mercury convertible, which started the Magic Skyway cars on their endless journey. Walt Disney was proud of the unique Disney-developed technologies featured in this largest pavilion of the fair, and said during the festivities that they marked the beginning of an entirely new form of art and entertainment, which will eventually take its place beside the theater, opera, and motion pictures. The Ford Wonder Rotunda featuring the Magic Skyway was a huge hit at the fair, and a massive undertaking. At 275,000 square feet, Ford's show building was easily the largest structure at the fair. The 127 audio-animatronic figures lining the Magic Skyway's ride track also made Ford's show one of the more technologically complex shows presented at the fair. Ford's Wonder Rotunda would be considered the mother of large-scale Disney attractions like Pirates of the Caribbean, and Epcot's World of Motion and Horizons. Whilst the World's Fair dinosaurs eventually found a home at Disneyland, the dinosaurs in Epcot's Universe of Energy are the same as the dinosaurs at the World's Fair, down to the creatures' poses and actions, with some cosmetic changes. A few years before the fair, the General Electric Lamp Division visited WED and wanted to sponsor an attraction at Disneyland. One of the ideas discussed was a Carousel of Progress attraction, which was envisioned as the centerpiece attraction for a late 1950s expansion of Disneyland's Main Street USA called Edison Square. Edison Square was to be a new land celebrating the era when the United States was transitioning from gas street lamps to the electric light bulb for its primary source of illumination. However, in 1958, the attraction's trademark theater go-round technology did not yet exist. 
As a result, the Imagineers envisioned audiences getting up and walking from theater to theater to view the six-act show. Even though Edison Square appeared as a coming attraction on Disneyland's souvenir maps for several years, by 1959 General Electric requested that Walt instead design a series of exhibits for their pavilion at the 1964 World's Fair. The Edison Square idea resurfaced with the planning of the New York World's Fair pavilion, and General Electric decided to go with the concept changing the name to Progress Land, a title consistent with its current marketing motto, Progress is Our Most Important Product. The Progress Land Pavilion was designed as a giant carousel in which the audience would rotate around a central core of scenes, visiting a family as its lifestyle changed from 1890 through 1920 to 1940 and up to the present. The father of the family would present nostalgic ideas about the home and about the progress General Electric had brought to each era. Even so, they were always looking forward to a great big beautiful tomorrow, as the show's theme song by Richard and Robert Sherman consistently pointed out. Richard Sherman had suggested the song embodied the spirit of Walt Disney and was their private tribute to Walt. Through many script revisions, the concept of the carousel show remained the same, although the time-traveling family did not. Wilbur K. Watt and family became the Cartwrights, then became the Peabody family of Middleburg, USA. Finally, in May 1963, a complete demonstration recording was assembled featuring Western star Rex Allen singing and speaking for the now nameless host with a full musical score by Disney composer Buddy Baker. As always, Walt Disney kept closely involved in the show's design. To Imagineer Mark Davis, Walt gave detailed notes on the motions of each of the 32 audio-animatronic characters, even including the two Spring Robins and Cousin Orville. When his staff worked on a comical 1920 scene in which lazy beer-drinking Cousin Orville was to sit in a bathtub with his back to the audience, Walt questioned the staging. He turned a tub around to face the audience, took off his shoes and socks, and jumped in. He'd wiggle his toes, don't you think, was Walt's conclusion. Walt also added the family dog to each scene, knowing the interaction between the pooch and his owner would enhance the character's personality. One reviewer stated, Just to see that mechanical dog wag its tail and lift its eyebrows is enough to get me back for another visit. Of course, the family's home appliances, all by General Electric, were often spotlighted later prompting Wed Chief Dick Irvine to call it, in retrospect, a refrigerator show. Irvine knew full well, though, the importance of refrigerator shows, the kind of presentations that met the needs of the sponsor client, the audience, and Walt Disney Productions. The participation of major corporations would help bring the increasingly complex and sophisticated Disney concepts to reality, it was both a philosophical and practical marriage of American industry and Disney showmanship. Exiting the Carousel Theater up a speed ramp and through a mirrored display corridor called the Galaxy of Science and Engineering, guests arrived in the crown of the building to view the Sky Dome Spectacular, 
projected on the 200-foot diameter concave ceiling was a dazzling sequence of thunder, lightning, solar files, and spinning atoms, illustrating man's quest for new energy sources. This was a prelude to the new exhibit, next exhibit, located at the base of an 80-foot spiraling ramp in the pavilion's core. Awe-inspiring atomic fusion, a man-made sun, promised the official fair guide book to the, wit to the witnesses of the General Electric Nuclear Fusion Demonstration. Every six minutes following a dramatic narrated countdown, a percussive blast would echo through the building as a brilliant flash from the domed fusion apparatus announced that millions of deuterium atoms had just been fused at 20 billion degrees Fahrenheit. This exhibit, designed by WED Imagineers and operated by GE scientists, was praised by the New York Times as the most grandiose science exhibit at the fair. How to capture the energy of the atom was demonstrated in General Electric's next product display area, Medallion City, a glimpse of the electronic promise of today. With the Progress Land theme playing in the background, visitors could explore 20 vignettes of utopian, civic, industrial, and residential futures. The live demonstration covered everything from space travel, to the fun of an enchanted kitchen. The Disney highlight of this area was the Toucan and Parrot Electric Utility Show. Flamboyant Monsieur Le Toucan, voiced by Paul Fries, hypnotized Parrot Rip Van Wrinkles, voiced by Disneyland's Wally Bogue, and two other brightly plumed audio-animatronic birds, sang and chatted with an animated utility pole transformer, voiced by Disney TV announcer Dick Wesson. In his trance, the parrot believed himself at the previous 1939 New York World's Fair, and humorous parallels were drawn as to the state of electricity then and now. As guests left the pavilion, another surprise awaited. The enormous roof of the Progress Land structure pulsed and danced with cycles of blue, green, and amber lights, which one writer described as a looking like hi a highly decorated flying saucer. All this, along with the Fountain of Planets and the nightly fireworks spectacular, made Progress Land one of the fair's must-see attractions. The pavilion opened with a flourish on the fair's opening day. Walt Disney cut the ribbon after introducing his special guest, Mrs. G. E. Fair, the audio-animatronic grandmother from the carousel show who, to the media's delight and the confusion of her fellow passengers, had flown first class from her native Burbank to visit the fair. In February 1963, an official from the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, or UNICEF, approached Joe Fowler and asked if WED could build them a ride for the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. Fowler told them no. They were already working on three very complex shows and could not handle another one. When Walt Disney heard this, he reminded Fowler who made the decisions. I'm the one who makes the decisions around here, Walt allegedly roared. So you call the Pepsi people back now and tell them that we'll do their damned UNICEF pavilion. 
On February 15th, Walt committed to the UNICEF project, and with very little time to spare, he turned to his already overworked staff and said, There's one more piece of real estate left at the fair, and we can have it if we want it. Pepsi-Cola is willing to sponsor whatever we do, and it'll be a salute to UNICEF. I've got an idea for a little boat ride. Walt had long talked about doing an attraction featuring animated dolls representing the children of the world, all singing in harmony and peace. He quickly called a series of story sessions to develop this concept. Imagineer Rolly Crump said, That's how it went from the day Walt had said, I've got an idea for a boat ride, to the opening of It's a Small World nine months later. We didn't have time to think this out. We designed it, built it, and installed it in nine months. Wow. And, and that included Walt's approval before we shipped it to New York. And isn't that amazing? Nine months. And look how popular it is from just know. a little boat ride. Mm-hmm. Walt turned to Disney artist and Imagineer Mark Davis for some ideas, but he was not satisfied with the results. Crump said, Mark Davis did a real nice rendering, but when Walt looked at it, he smiled, turned to Dick Irvine and said, What's Mary Blair doing? Artist Mary Blair had worked on the Christmas sequence in The Three Caballeros, creating a series of still images which depicted a traditional Mexican Christmas observance enacted by children, all of whom were drawn in Mary's distinctive rounded style, and Walt felt her unique style captured much of the same spirit he was seeking for his boat ride. Crump had sug has suggested that Walt liked the two-dimensional style she used when doing her little golden books. Mary chose that style of positive and negative shapes, and she went to a new level with her work on Small World. Preliminary ideas were put together and flown out to Pepsi's headquarters in New York for a presentation. Pepsi's board of directors watched with a detached interest as they were told of the preliminary plans for the happiest cruise that ever sailed. When the presentation was finished, most of the board reacted in a negative manner, asking such questions as, Why do we need this Mickey Mouse thing? The reaction illustrates why Pepsi approached Disney so late in the game. They couldn't get to first base with any designer or anything, recalled Bob Gurr. Finally, a year after they should have started, they approached us. Joan Crawford, the film actress, was on the board of directors for Pepsi. She knew that Disney was working on three pavilions, so it was under her suggestion that Pepsi approached Disney. It was only about ten months from the opening of the fair, and Pepsi's board of directors was about to make the same mistake it had made with the previous designers. They were going to derail the concept. Joan Crawford had seen enough. She stood up, and with the talents acquired from years of playing ladies, leading ladies in Hollywood, she emphatically informed the board that we are going to do this. Blair was put in charge of the overall design of the attraction and the color styling. Campbell and Coates assisted with the initial show design for the sets. Crump and Jack Fergus worked from Blair's paintings and collages to create the three-dimensional set pieces and toys. Alice Davis designed the costumes, and her husband Mark did the sketches of the figures he called rubberheads. 
it was up it was up to Blaine Gibson to transform all this two-dimensional art into three-dimensional figures. It was not easy. Gibson struggled with Blair's very specific style, but he inevitably caught the essence of her concepts and Mark Davis's drawings. As the figures were being sculpted, Alice Davis began to design the costumes and asked Walt for the costume's budget. Walt raised his eyebrow and said, I have a building over there filled with bookkeepers that find the money. I want the most beautiful costumes that every little girl, no matter what age she is, would love to have to play with. So you make the most beautiful costumes you can make. The original idea was to have each set of dolls sing the national anthem of their country as guests floated past. It did not work. An early test on the Disney Studio lot proved this idea was a complete disaster. All of the national anthems sung simultaneously meant the songs drowned each other out, or worse than that, bled together, making this cacophony. Walt called in his studio composers, Richard and Robert Sherman, and told them, What we need is a simple little rondelay, you know, like row, row, row your boat. The brothers gave it some thought, and Richard Sherman said, There was a big problem here, and it really had to do with the children in the show. Everybody knows that kids grow into adults, and it's adults that keep getting the world messed up. But in the small world of children, everybody loves each other. Then we thought of a concept. Why can't we all just be together? We only have one world to live on. Their first attempt... It's a Small World came easily. Too easily, the brothers thought. Through two feverish weeks of writing, they produced two additional songs. Ultimately, Walt approved first. With his customary, that'll work. Musician Bobby Hammock was called in to interpret the Sherman Brothers' composition in the musical styles of the countries depicted. Soon, 29 different international orchestrations plus a grand finale, two full renditions for the cue, and children's vocals in six languages was recorded. The theme song, It's a Small World, would become one of the most recorded songs in history. Throughout the attraction, the song is played in the style and language specific to each culture on display as the boats pass by. Small World used an innovative ride system which would, of course, find its way back to Disneyland. The visitors boarded small, flat-bottom boats and cruised through the show building along a winding canal of water. In contrast to the noisy, low-capacity dark ride cars at Disneyland, the Small World boats were quiet, reliable, and because each could carry nearly two dozen people, provided an extremely high hourly guest capacity. There was one overlooked detail. The 53 colorful vessels sailing the attraction's seven seaways were called fantasy boats in promotional materials. After it was learned that Fanta was the name of a division of the Coca-Cola <laughs> company, the less whimsical description, 15 passenger boats, was hastily used. Much of the layout and design of the finished version of Small World was due to the fact that the ride building for this attraction was under construction before anyone knew for sure what was going to go into the structure. 
That's why the fair officials constructed a simple L-shaped building with 32,000 square feet of space inside. Those who worked on the attraction called it the ugliest building you ever saw in your life. Walt Disney wanted something playful he could put out in front of the attraction building that would become an icon. Raleigh Crump suggested a childlike tinker toy approach, with 100 spinning, swiveling, oscillating elements, propellers, a carousel, and a representation of the sun, all dependent on the wind for locomotion. The 120-foot tower of the four winds would become the world's largest mobile. The finished tower was shipped to the fair in seven chartered vans, where it was reassembled with the support of a foundation 60 feet deep. Tall enough to be visible from nearly every area of the fair, Meet Me Under the Tower of the Four Winds became a popular catchphrase. Walt told admiring journalists the tower represented the boundless energy of youth, adding that the colors of every flag in the world will be represented somewhere in this mobile. Working in high gear, the WED crew mocked up the entire ride in full scale on a sound stage at the studio. They placed and tested the audio-animatronic children as soon as they came off the mechanical assembly line. The soundstage area looked like a Hollywood version of Santa's workshop, as more than 250 animated toys were carefully handcrafted. The publicity release kept track of the materials used. 195 pounds of glitter, 57 gross of jewels, 370 yards of braid, 28 dozen tassels, feathers, and ostrich fluff. For children's hair and animal fur, they glued on marabou, ostrich plumes, goose feathers, and pheasant tails, using five gallons of glue a week. The happiest cruise that ever sailed was launched with all the colorful magic of a day at Disneyland. Balloons filled the sky, and Disney characters greeted guests outside the pavilion. Guests' comments varied from wonderful to the best thing at the fair. Broadway's Dolly Levi, Carol Channing, was moved to report, With his usual good taste and brilliant imagination, Mr. Disney uses hundreds of beautiful dolls to remind us in song of the brotherhood of men all over the world. All of the dolls have the same face, though their color is different. Over 10 million people rode the attraction at the fair, and It's a Small World has since sailed into Disney theme parks worldwide opening June 1st, 1966 at Disneyland. Five decades later, the simplicity of the message and the beauty of its design continue to enchant audiences, which is precisely what Walt had planned after all. <laughs> Happily, all the hard work by Walt Disney's Imagineers paid off. All four of Disney's shows for the fair received enormous acclaim. In surveys taken to gauge the popularity of various shows and attractions at the 1964 New York World's Fair, Walt Disney shows often took four of the top five slots. Attendance-wise, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, It's a Small World, Carousel of Progress, and The Magic Skyway always made it into the top 15. 90% of all fairgoers visited at least one of the Disney attractions. Of course, Disney did have a few difficulties with its attractions during their days at the fair. For example, Mr. Lincoln had to have his glass eyes and false teeth repaired repeatedly because some guests at the fair became convinced that there was just no way that this lifelike figure could be a robot. 
So, in an effort to prove that Disney's Lincoln figure was really just a guy in a suit, these guests used to whip the free ball bearings that they'd pick up at the SFK exhibit at the President Lincoln audio-animatronic figure, resulting in cracked eyeballs and chipped false teeth. The Small World attraction also had to deal with periodic damage caused by pranksters. Fairgoers were forever stealing fish out of the koi pond at the Japanese pavilion and slipping the colorful <laughs> creatures into the immense water-filled trough running oh, through yeah. the Pepsi-Cola show building. That is, when they weren't emptying entire bottles of Mr. Bubble into the water, which would result in the boats having to push through four-foot-high walls of foam. Disney also wanted to have some of the company's costume characters that regularly meet and greet tourists at Disneyland to make daily appearances in front of the Pepsi-Cola building. However, after Snow White had a switchblade pulled on her and Practical Pig had his arm of his costume torn off, Disney's characters began greeting guests at the fair from above, waving down at the people standing in line at It's a Small World from a platform fixed to the bottommost portion of the Tower of the Four Winds. The fair ran for two seasons, from April 22nd to October 18th, 1964, and from April 22nd to October 17th, 1965. During the second season, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln opened at Disneyland and played simultaneously on both coasts. What other person in the world, one writer asked, would have been so venturesome, so rash, so seemingly foolhardy as to contract with Pepsi-Cola, Ford, General Electric, and the State of Illinois to present four extravagantly expensive attractions, all of which were in the experimental stage, with deadlines that none of the military services or companies themselves would have considered possible to meet. Yet not one of his men at WED felt put upon, and the reason is clear. If you are one of a picked group and have been given the chance to pursue the occupation you like best, you are willing to make the extra effort. It took that extra effort on the part of everyone at Disney. The WED staff, studio employees, and the operating personnel quickly established performance standards that had never been seen in a world exposition before. After the 1964 season closed and the fair hadn't come close to meeting its attendance projections, Robert Moses supposedly met with Walt and asked for his help in driving up attendance for the 1965 season. Moses proposed a new Disney-designed amusement area, which would have been built on a large vacant piece of land next to the gas pavilion. Moses reportedly envisioned a miniature Disneyland complete with castle and dark rides. Walt politely refused Robert's request. As 1965 and the fair continued to fall behind its financial projections, a movement was started to remove Moses as head of the fair. Walt Disney was approached about taking over Moses' position as president of the fair. Walt again politely refused. Even though Walt turned down the job as president of the fair, he hired away Robert Moses' right-hand man, retired General William E. Joe Potter, as the fair was winding down. Prior to his time spent working with Moses, Potter spent many years working with the Army Corps of Engineers. Joe was a man who was accustomed to taking on big jobs and getting them done. At one point, Potter had been governor of the Panama Canal Zone. 
After watching Potter masterfully supervise the construction of the dozens of different pavilions rising up out of Flushing Meadow, Walt knew Joe was exactly the guy he needed to help turn all those cypress swamps in Florida into a vacation paradise. Which is why, as the fair was drawing to a close in late 1965, Disney offered Potter a position with the Disney organization. In the end, General Joe Potter was the man responsible for turning the 28,000 acres of Florida swampland Disney had purchased outside of Orlando into a workable construction site. When the fair was over, four of the five most popular shows were Disney's. The press reaction matched the public's enthusiasm, perhaps best exemplified by a headline in Look magazine, Walt Disney, Giant at the Fair. It gave the exhausted wet Imagineers a tremendous boost in morale, and the major sponsors a tremendous boost in confidence in the television show Walt Disney Presents. As he had planned, Walt worked to get all four of the exhibits Walt Disney Productions produced for the fair brought back to Disneyland. Mr. Lincoln debuted at Disneyland in 1965 and was joined a year later by It's a Small World and the prehistoric menagerie for Magic Skyway. Carousel of Progress joined Tomorrowland's World on the Move in 1967. As the high point of Disneyland's Tencennial Celebration on July 17, 1965, Walt Disney proudly dedicated great moments with Mr. Lincoln at the Main Street Opera House. Although Liberty Street never did come to California, in 1971, the new Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom debuted Liberty Square. Its central attraction, the Hall of Presidents, featuring an oration by Abraham Lincoln. It's a Small World moved into Fantasyland the following year, in June 1966. The Tower of the Four Winds had been left behind. As popular as this immense mobile had been, Walt balked when he learned about the projected $80,000 cost of dismantling the tower and having it shipped back to California. After the fair closed, the Tower of the Four Winds was unceremoniously pulled down. The all-metal structure was chopped into small pieces using acetylene torches, then tossed just offshore of the fair's lakeside amusement area transportation zone. In its place at Disneyland, Rolly Crump blended whimsical versions of famed international architecture into a spectacular kinetic facade. A large animated clock tower launched a colorful parade of toys as it chimed out the arrival of each new hour. To interest Ford in continuing their relationship with Walt Disney Productions after the fair, Walt had the Sherman Brothers compose a theme song, Get the Feel of the Wheel, dubbed the Ford March, which was presented with ideas for the new Cruise-O-Magic Theater for Tomorrowland. Although nothing came of this concept, the dinosaurs of the Magic Skyway moved west to inhabit the primeval world at Disneyland in July 1966, forming a spectacular climax to the now-familiar Grand Canyon diorama along the Disneyland Railroad. After guests on the train viewed the Grand Canyon, they were treated to a look at a prehistoric canyon filled with roaring dinosaurs, screeching pterodactyls, and flowing lava. The cavemen, however, haven't been seen since. <laughs> The Carousel of Progress reached Disneyland without Edison Square in the summer of 1967 as part of the all-new Tomorrowland. 
In many incarnations, it has spread its infectious optimism to the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World as well. More importantly, though, it had a positive domino effect on all of Disneyland's Tomorrowland. The presence of General Electric and its renowned show in Disneyland gave Walt new leverage to talk to other major corporations. McDonnell Douglas agreed to a new, more exciting flight to the moon. Meanwhile, the chemical giant Monsanto decided to give up the Hall of Chemistry for an intriguing adventure through inner space. And Goodyear joined up sponsoring the People Mover, a newly developed wed transportation system that would whisk guests around the new land of the future. Disneyland had not seen a busier time since its initial construction. In the midst of all the exciting activities, it was remarkable that Walt Disney was able to keep his secret. Only a handful of people knew about his illness. In my next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, we'll explore the first new land at Disneyland since its opening in 1955 and the last major project Walt Disney supervised, New Orleans Square. If you would like to learn more about Walt Disney and the 1964-65 New York World's Fair, I highly recommend the following books and recordings. Disneyland, The Inside Story by Randy Bright. The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway. It's Kind of a Cute Story by Rolly Crump. Design Just for Fun by Bob Gurr. The five-CD set, Walt Disney and the 1964 World's Fair. Walt Disney and the New York World's Fair exhibit at the Walt Disney's Family Museum in San Francisco. Finally, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by Walt Disney. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. All right, that's going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.